Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast to coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones or bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, winners? How you doing? What's going on? Welcome to episode 161 of the Moranalytics Podcast, presented today by 26 Shirts. Today is Tuesday, October 15, 2019. Thank you so much for downloading and for listening to the show. If you have not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so right now. Coming up on the podcast today, and I'm going to tell you right now, I am super, super pumped about this one. I'm going to be joined by Kristen Ledlow, TV host, reporter, and anchor. She does it all at NBA TV and the NBA on TNT. And Kristen is easily one of the most talented and well-liked sports media personalities in the game today, period. I am excited, very excited to be having her on today. One of my favorite gets for this podcast today for sure. We're going to spend time talking about her life and her career like I do with most sports media people on this show from her growing up in Florida and becoming, by the way, quite the sports star herself. She's a fantastic athlete. She was a really good basketball and volleyball player growing up. In fact, she played at a high level in college. And then we talk about how the transition came, when the tide turned a little bit in her decision making and she decided that she wanted to be in TV broadcasting and that was going to become her career and discuss the steps that she took starting in school that ultimately would get her there. So we talk about that, her path to NBA TV, how she got the job at NBA Inside Stuff, and what it's like working alongside NBA legend Grant Hill on that show. We discuss some of her biggest influences in the media, including Ernie Johnson, really good stuff about him, much more, including the traditional mini lightning round that we do with all the interviews to end. Tons of fun facts about Kristen on the way. And I'm being serious here, man. I was very pumped to get her on. Could not have been any nicer, by the way. Absolutely awesome person. I already knew she was talented, but she's just a really nice person. Awesome. Again, one of my favorite guests that I've had on this podcast since I launched it over a year and a half ago. So, of course, that's not it for today. Got plenty more for you as well. Got to get our Buffalo Bills and Buffalo Sabres fixed in. And I'll be doing that with my guy Jeff Boyd from the 716 Sports Podcast, another segment that we like to do called the Big Boy Theory. Today we'll talk about the semi-stunning big starts from both the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres. And we'll talk about how long we think both teams can sustain this early success. Much more with that. So I got both those coming down the shoot for you. And in fact, you know what? Not going to waste any more time. Let's just dive in right now to today's episode. Here's my interview with MEA TV personality Kristen Ledlow. Followed immediately by the Big Boy Theory with Jeff Boyd. Let's do it. 
All right, my guest today is one of the more popular and respected basketball TV hosts, anchors, and reporters in the business today. She works for NBA TV and, of course, the NBA on TNT. I am talking about Kristen Ledlow. What's going on, Kristen? I know you're busy. Hoop season is cranking up. It's upon us. How you doing? Thanks for jumping on my podcast. Well, goodness, what an introduction. I appreciate it. Any time now. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to keep the same format that I do with most of my sports media guests, and that's just give fans an opportunity to know more about you. So let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit here anyway. You're from Florida, born and raised. You grew up quite the athlete, too. You played basketball, volleyball, cross-country, track. Why did sports attract you at such a young age? Well, it was... Most likely because I was close to six feet tall as a 10-year-old. Uh, that path kind of just lays itself right on out there for you. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did do a, an array of things when I was a little girl, um, but I did find myself feeling most comfortable and most confident when I was on the basketball court or on the volleyball court. It was something uh, somewhere that my my height didn't feel like a disadvantage where I always had to hunch down in photos with my, you know, fourth grade classmates. Right. And instead it felt like it could be an advantage. And, and so I fell in love with the game of basketball, especially really early on. Now you played high school ball. You were a star there. You went to Florida State for a bit. You transferred into Southeastern University. That's in Lakeland, Florida. By the way, I'm in Bradenton, Florida, maybe about an hour, hour and ten minutes away yeah, from Lakeland. Yeah, all right. Yeah, you're a, and you were an All-American volleyball player and a great basketball player there, too. What was that experience like for you going to college and playing college athletics, both socially and, you know, just maturity-wise playing? No, that's a great question and a great angle to that question as well because I think so often we talk about our sports careers um, solely where the sport is concerned um, instead of looking at it as as how fundamental it is in, in, in social maturity in so many other areas. Of, I, I mean, especially for young women in sports, you know, gaining confidence that, that I don't believe is found in many other places otherwise. Uh, when I was in college, uh, the entirety of my life was shaped by my college volleyball coach and, and my college teammates. I spent all of my time from morning until night with my teammates. Um, the, the direction that my life took is because of the community that I was surrounded by while I was in college. So it was so much more important to me than trying to become an All-American volleyball player or, or, you know, it was, for me, it was something I legitimately enjoyed every single day because of the people around me. And because of my experience playing college sports, I wanted to stay in and around sports for good. And, And it shaped, like I said, so much of who I am, um, the confidence that I have still on a basketball court, just now in high heels instead of in sneakers. Sometimes (laughs) I do wear sneakers. Um, But, you know, it's it's obviously a a different arena, no pun there intended, but so much of what I did in college shaped the direction my life and career was headed. And and that, I think, was, was far and away more important than just the physical aspect of playing sports themselves. Sure. Now, you majored in broadcasting and communications in college. When did you know that being in sports media and working in TV was something that you may potentially want to do for a career? 
Yeah, I didn't add the second major in broadcast until my senior year. I went into school majoring in communications because I thought that if I wanted to stay around the game in some capacity, I could work perhaps in marketing or perhaps in PR. Or Initially, my, my dream was to work in the front office of an NBA franchise, which, you know, yeah. Who knows? Could still happen someday. Sure. But that was what I went to college thinking that I wanted to do. And then I started working within our broadcast department at Southeastern, and they had an incredible one, still have an incredible one. But I hadn't seen any equipment or a studio like that before. And, and giving us the opportunity to not just say, hey, just sit in this classroom and, and listen how to be a broadcaster. It's no, hey, go out there and get your hands on this equipment and learn how to be a broadcaster. And once I started doing that, uh, once I started covering all of the the athletic events on our campus and and getting the opportunity really to to get my my, my hands dirty in the industry, uh, I I fell in love with it. And I decided um, actually right before my senior year that that was the direction that I wanted to to run full speed ahead in. Now, we see you on TV and it looked so natural, but I'm sure it probably wasn't so natural at first. How much of a process was it for you getting used to being on TV and getting used to being in front of a camera and just everything that comes along with doing what you do? Well, still to this day, I I struggle when it's just me standing there with a microphone looking into the black hole that is the lens of a camera. (laughs) That, I don't know if that will ever feel entirely natural. But what does feel natural to me uh, is interviewing the players and coaches and executives, you know, in and around the league. It's it's getting the opportunity to connect with people and cameras just happen to be rolling. And I try and approach it the same way that I did as an NBA fan, which is just what is it that fans want to see? What is it that fans want to hear? And and when I approach it that way, I'm entirely myself. I'm far more confident. And, and whether or not the cameras are rolling, I know that I can approach it the same way I would on and off television, and that, that certainly has helped me a lot. Not going to spend a lot of time bouncing around early career stuff as you honed your craft, so to speak, so we'll skip ahead some. Your career took you from Florida, where you were born and raised and went to school, to Atlanta, and ultimately you got hired as a host for NBA Inside Stuff alongside former NBA star Grant Hill. How did that opportunity come about for you? So I was working in morning radio in Atlanta, sports talk radio, and one of my co-hosts, Rick Samla, was also one of the hosts on NBA TV. And he was the first that told me that Inside Stuff was coming back to NBA TV and that Grant Hill had signed on. It had not yet been announced, and, and it, was a, it was a big deal and that they were auditioning co-hosts. Wow. I was like, oh, man, i got to get in there. And it wasn't like I was thinking, i got to get in there because I'm going to get the job and become Grant Hill's co-host. I just thought, i got to get in there because I just want to meet Grant Hill. That'll be cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, it did not cross my mind it could actually be my full-time job and that I'd be talking to you about it, you know, this side of almost seven years later. Um, I, I approached it, you know, probably far too flippantly, but the way that, that, that little girl Kristen would have approached Grant when he came to play for the Orlando Magic when I was there, you know? Yeah. And, and and so so I, you know, it was like, uh, okay, be cool, don't hug him, you know, go in there, do the job, got it. But, but no, I, I went in that day and just thought, if this is the only day 
that I get to spend in this building. If this is the only day I get to spend in this studio, I'm just going to have a good time. Yeah. And I didn't hear back immediately. It was within a couple of weeks before I, I, I realized that I was one of just the last couple of people that they were considering. And and then they told me that that was going to be my job. And I, I I think still to this day on this side of it, I I can't actually believe it. I'll tell you, Inside Stuff was one of my favorite shows. It was back on in the early 90s. I remember made famous by yeah. Ahmad Rashad. Yeah, and then yeah. it went off the air for, I think it was eight years, came back in 2013. What's it like working with Grant Hill? And what's your favorite part of doing that show? <laughs> Grant is, uh, goodness, it's difficult even to sum up in the allotted time that we have here what an incredible person Grant Hill is. Everybody knows what a great playing career he had, but to spend not even a day, but even an hour with Grant, which is what I initially got the chance to do at our audition, I knew, like, there's just something special about who he is as a person, far more so than even as a player. He is kind. He is generous with with his time and his resources. He is everything that when you look and see him on TV, whether he's playing at a basketball game or calling a basketball game or whatever it may be that he does now, he's, he's everything that you hope he's going to be. He's hardworking, he's down to earth, and he is the closest thing that I've ever had to having a big brother. Yeah, Grant Hill seems like a really awesome guy. Let's switch gears here. Who would you consider a couple of your biggest influences in sports media? Without a doubt, Ernie Johnson, even before getting to know Ernie, was the one that I looked up to. I loved the way that he approached his job as entirely himself all the time. He did such an excellent job of of navigating these conversations that seem to go so far off the rails, but they always found their way back because of Ernie. <laughs> yeah. That, of course, was what I thought about him before I got to know him. And then getting to know him, he's so much better and more and 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 far and above what you even hope he's going to be like. Um, I am a, a firm believer that our network's culture and climate has been largely dictated by Ernie Johnson as a man, not just as a broadcaster. And I am eternally grateful for that. Um, and of course, Doris Burke was a huge influence on me as well. I, I remember coming into the industry and getting down to the end of my first season with NBA TV and thinking, if they send me to the NBA Finals, I want to find Doris. I just want, I just want to meet her. I just want to tell her how much I appreciate her. And she not only took the time to, to talk to me, but has now for years continued to invest in my career, which she does not have to do. Right. You know, she was the first and the only woman at the top of the game for so very long, and yet she still takes the time to pause and turn around and take notice of those who are coming behind her and champion them forward. And so she's, she's absolutely been, been a huge um, influence on me as a broadcaster as well. All right, I got just two more for you, and then we're going to wrap up the mini lightning round. Being on TV is fun. It can be glamorous. There's a lot of positive things about doing what you do. But at the same token, it's not always fun and games, not always easy. What would you say for people out there listening who might want to be like you someday, they might want to do what you do, what's probably the hardest part of your job, the hardest thing about it? Oh, goodness. Um, 
It's interesting that you phrase it that way because that is the truth. Uh, only a very small percentage of my job is seen and viewed by these thousands of people that are watching. Right. Uh, there is a large percentage of preparation and travel and sacrifice in your time and energy and schedule that isn't seen from the outside and that I don't know I would have pursued it with such vigor had I known either. But now inside of the industry, now, you know, having the opportunity to, to, to actually do this is, you know, all of that stuff kind of seems, it, it seems temporary, you know, because the opportunity to get to be placed on a platform where people can become more important than my position and where this role, you know, recognizing the weight of it and that there are people actually listening to what I have to say for this season of my life, all of that is going to be much longer lasting than anything that appears to be a challenge. Um, but, you know, that's certainly the hard part. You may have heard me cough several times already. The season hasn't even started, and I'm already sick again. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, it certainly has its obstacles. <laughs> All right, last one here before the traditional mini lighting round to end. i got to throw in one quick NBA question for you with the season getting ready to start. Give me one team that I could go to Vegas right now and place a bet that you'd feel pretty good about me making. And I want to kind of get an investment back on my bet, so I'm not going to take the Clippers or the Lakers who had the lowest odds, but I'm also not going to just throw my money away and bet on the Knicks winning the NBA championship either. So who's the team that you think isn't necessarily the odds-on favorite, but the fan base should feel pretty good about that team, and it could be a, a worthwhile gamble on? The Philadelphia 76ers. I think at every position, they are as talented individually as any other starting lineup in the NBA. And they have the advantage of having played together now for several years at the highest level. I think that the Sixers could be the sleeper that, that not only represents the Eastern Conference, but could contend for a title this season. Okay, excellent. Let's end mini lighting round. All I'm going to do is ask you a handful of random questions. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever the first thing that pops in your mind, that'll be your answer. Kind of like rapid for yourself. Right. You good to go? Yes, all let's right. do it. Yes, Fa- favorite all-time basketball player, but you can't say Grant Hill. <laughs> Michael Jordan. Okay. Favorite non-basketball player. Favorite athlete that's not a basketball player. Uh, man, why is my mind so full of only basketball players right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, can we come back to that? No, I, I mean it's got. I grew up in Tallahassee. It's got to be a Florida State football player. It could be Deion Sanders, maybe Charlie Ward. Uh, those uh, all time for me. Okay, what's your favorite city that you've been able to visit? An NBA city or any, any city? city? Any city for any reason, whether it was work, pleasure, just your favorite city that you've visited. Oh well. It's talking any city, then I'm going to go with the city where I was engaged and then married all within the last year, and that is right outside of Destin, Florida. Okay, awesome. Who was your first celebrity crush that you could remember? Oh, this is easy, because not only was he my first celebrity crush, he still right now at 30 years of age is my celebrity crush. It is, it was, and it always will be Justin Timberlake. (laughs) Okay. What's your go-to snack? Yeah, okay. My go-to snack. 
they've got no nutritional value, but I sure do love Skittles. Okay. What movie have you probably rewatched more than any other one? Mm. It's a a toss-up between Space Jam and Titanic. I know that those are two very, very (laughs) different films. (laughs) However, I have watched those two movies since about the third grade more times than any other movie that exists. Okay. Name a TV game show that you feel like if you were on it, you could potentially dominate, whether it's a current game show or a past one. That's no problem because it always was Family Feud, and I got to be on Family Feud last year with the TNT crew, and we won, and I won the lightning round, so I have no more dreams of of, of game show. I, I did it. I did it. I did, I did it. <laughs> I got to go back to watch that. Now, I didn't see it, but now I'm yeah. definitely going to have to find it and watch it. All right, last couple here. Instead of doing this interview, right now we're at a bar, we're having a couple of drinks, and there's karaoke going on. If you were to go on stage right now and sing a karaoke song that you think people would get into... What would it be? I tend to go with I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys solely because late 90s, early 2000s pop tends to get a bar going. Yeah. I tend to start there, and then I always, like my, my signature is Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. Okay. Last two here. Who would you consider your favorite Twitter follow? I'm sure you have several of them, but if you could only follow one person on Twitter or one Twitter handle, and that was it, and all your other follows – Went away, and you can only keep one. Who would it probably be? Well, it would have to be Chrissy Teigen or Shea Serrano, and I would let the two of them battle it out for my uh, for my follow. <laughs> okay. Last one here. I always ask this. You could have three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive, new basketball players, old basketball players, celebrities, anyone you want at your dinner table tonight, some food, maybe a couple drinks or whatever have you, some conversation, three people who you got. Hmm. And they don't just have to be basketball players? No, it could be anybody. Hmm. Well, I mean, we'd have to start with Justin Timberlake then, right? Let's sure. bring this full circle. No brainer. <laughs> All right. Justin Timberlake, Michael Jordan, and I don't think I have another one. Can I just have dinner with Justin Timberlake and Michael Jordan? That's good enough. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. And everyone out there, follow Kristen on Twitter, at Kristen Ledlow, and of course, check her out on NBA TV and NBA on TNT. Thanks a lot, Kristen. I know you're really busy, especially this time of year, so appreciate your time. This was awesome. Of course. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate you. That interview today was brought to you by 26 Shirts. Very excited to have 26 Shirts as part of this podcast. Now, Del Reed, one of my favorite people out there. He does so many good things for so many people and so many worthy causes. If you didn't already know, let me briefly tell you just a little bit about 26 shirts. You can get a Buffalo theme design. It's sold for only two weeks. Every two weeks, they have a new shirt, and then it's gone. So you got to get that shirt in that two-week span. 52 divided by 2 is 26, hence the name 26 shirts. Every other week, a new shirt. Here's the best part of everything, okay? Every time you buy a shirt, a donation is made to either a local family that is in need or to a very worthy charity. And since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate over $650,000. 650k and still growing. You could go out and get yourself an awesome looking shirt that looks great on you. And the best part is, 
you're helping someone else that really needs it. So head over to 26church.com and see what cause needs you this week. All right, I am now joined by Jeff Boyd, another edition of the Big Boyd Theory. Jeff Boyd, of course, from the 716 Sports Podcast. How are you doing, Jeff? Quick question for you. On a scale of 1 to 10, the Bills were on a bye last week. How lost did you feel on Sunday with the Bills being on a bye? Well, for, for me, it's probably like maybe a, maybe a 5 or a 6. I'm a big fantasy football guy. I'm just a big fan of the sport of football in general. So, yeah, there was no Bills game on, so we were focused on some other some other games. But, you know, had the Red Zone channel on, following along to fantasy, checking all the games out yesterday. So, we, we, we got through the week. It was okay. And the good part about having the, the bye so early in the season, it's, well, first of all, it came at a great time for the Bills with all the injuries. But secondly, now there's so many weeks consecutively of Sundays and the one Thursday game that lead to the end of the season. And just get that bye week out of the way, focus on many, many more Sundays now of Bills football, leading to hopefully a good and exciting conclusion. Yeah, that was a little bit higher for me. I kind of felt lost on Sunday. Didn't know what to do with myself. Usually I just jump up out of bed and I'm ready to go, and I'm locked in on the Bills. They didn't play Sunday, so I kind of went out to a diner, did some other things with my wife running around, and it was just, it kind of blew my mind that people in this Tampa area just don't seem to care about the team, at least not on the same level that Buffalo Bills fans do. They played in the morning because it was a London game, and again, I was at a diner, and just people didn't really seem to care what was going on with the game. But anyway, that's another topic for another time. I want to hit on some Bills and Sabres stuff with you today. Let's start with the Bills. Okay, they did just come off a bye. And I wanted to kind of go over four storylines that I think are four of the biggest bye week storylines for Buffalo. I'll go through them, and then I want to get your take on each of them. The first one, and these are like kind of things we've learned or things that are still need to be determined, the Bills' defense, okay? We could talk Josh Allen, and we will talk Josh Allen for a few minutes. But before I get to him, we got to talk about this defense. It was a lot of speculation that it could be an elite defense. I don't think that's speculation anymore. I'm pretty sure that everybody – around the league feels that Buffalo has one of the best defenses. As of right now, they're fourth in points allowed, third in yards allowed. Nobody's scored more than 17 points on them this year in five games. And there's no Pro Bowl locks on this defense right now, but I could probably make a reasonable case to you that there could be as many as six Pro Bowl-worthy defenders on this team right now. What's your take on this defense right now? And you ready to say right now, declare that they are in a league defense and that's not really speculation anymore? I think without a question at this point, they are a top two or top three defense in the NFL, and you can rank those top three teams wherever you feel like. But there is absolutely no question in my mind that the Buffalo Bills defense in its current form is an absolute dominant elite defense. And this is a team that's doing all of this without the benefit of what some of these other top defenses have. There's no offense that's really going out there and keeping the other team off the field. This Bills defense keeps going out there in minus situations, backs to the wall, having to make stops, and just time and time again, they continue to deliver at just in a, almost unprecedented rate for a team that has been decently good on defense even over the last few years that they've struggled. This is a defense that is just – the front four has been impressive. The, the linebackers continue with Milano and, and Edmonds alongside Alexander just continue to improve, and then you've got a secondary – led by one of the, I would say again, top three best shutdown corners in the NFL, a great safety duo. There is not a weak link on this defense, and they have made the lives of every offense they've gone against very, very difficult. And I do not see that that is going to change anytime soon. I would agree that you're probably going to get at least four or five starters on this Bills defense 
Pro Bowl nominees, and I think it's very deserved in every case. Yeah, definitely. If nothing else, they definitely deserve to be in the conversation. And just so we're clear at this point, I'm talking Tredavious White. I'm talking Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde in the secondary. I'm talking Hughes on the line. I'm talking Edmonds and Milano, a linebacker. And I'll tell you, you know what I love most about this defense is they're doing it in different ways. Like against Tennessee, they really got after Marcus Mariota. I think they sacked him five times. But when you look at the stats for the season, the one thing the Bills have not done a very good job of defensively is sacking the quarterback. They're only 21st in the NFL right now, tied for 21st in the NFL with 12 sacks. But that's kind of my point. Against New England, they didn't sack Tom Brady once, but the coverage, the secondary was just phenomenal. They were doing such a good job of covering guys. So this is like, again, it's not one superstar, although I think like Tremaine Edmonds is kind of getting close to becoming that type of player, but they just beat you in a variety of different ways, and they're so deep. This defense is so deep. I mean, the defensive line rotation is crazy, too. The guys they can put out there. I mean, Phillips was absolutely incredible in the Tennessee game, too, and he's a guy yeah. who's only really getting these kind of looks because of injuries. I'm not so worried about the sack totals. The sack totals are great. Obviously, you want to be getting pressure to the quarterback, but I will take what they're doing, which is I feel like they're getting very consistent pressure, making the life of the quarterback difficult, even if they don't ultimately bring him down. Just accelerating his clock, making him throw faster, making him make, go through less reads, that makes all the difference. He's like, yeah, the sacks are the flashy total, and everyone wants the Miles Garrett kind of player who's getting to the quarterback a couple times a game, it feels like. But ultimately, you can have two sacks and only be pressuring the quarterback a handful of times a game. I would rather have the defense that is consistently just breathing down the neck of the quarterback and maybe only gets one sack a game. I think what they've done up front to make the life of the secondary easier, it, it, it's no surprise to me that guys like Levi Wallace and Tremaine and, and Tredavious White are having great games on the outside because the quarterback doesn't have time to try to get his receivers downfield because if he takes an extra second, then that is going to be a sack for Jerry Hughes or Ed Oliver. And I mean, how long is it going to be now Ed Oliver doesn't have a sack in on the year? I feel like that's almost just inevitable at this point that he's going to start correcting back to the mean and you know, look at him at the end of the season and be like, man, he got those eight sacks or seven sacks in a, in a hurry because of the slow start that he got. So uh, the sack total is, it's not the beyond end all here for me. I think the D-line has been great, and that's just one number that doesn't really tell the whole story. Yeah, that's a great point. So the defense being a lead is a storyline. Josh Allen's development, obviously that's another storyline. Five touchdowns, seven interceptions. He's averaging 224 yards passing a game, which is up about 40-some yards from last year as a rookie. His quarterback rating, 75.2. Pretty pedestrian. On the good side, he's shown that he can extend plays. He's making some like ESPN-type throws on the run and look very good at times, dangerous as ever with his legs. And then, of course, on the bad side, some terrible decision-making at times, horrible turnovers. He's got seven picks this year. I would say probably five of them have been absolutely horrible decisions and throws but at the same token I kind of believe in this guy I talked about this in the Patriots game he threw four interceptions I thought he was terrible but at the same token I feel like if he didn't get hurt he would have got in that game in the last four minutes or so and somehow some way hooker crook would have found a way to bring him down the field and take the lead that's just how I feel about him anyway what's your assessment of Josh Allen right now through the bye week are things pretty much going as you expected are you a little disappointed are you a little pleasantly surprised where are you at with him right now I think this is pretty much where we thought he might be based on where we were talking before the season. I think the reason that you're disappointed and I'm disappointed, or maybe not disappointed, maybe the word is, maybe the better word might be frustrated, is because you mentioned those kind of plays that he's making, those highlight plays, the throws across his body, that one throw to, to Knox that I think is the best throw he's ever made in the NFL when right. he's rolling to his right, that throw back across his body. You know that he is capable of doing that. 
So that's now your barometer for what he's capable of. So now every time he goes out there and he rolls right on first down and tries to throw a ball in the triple coverage for an interception, you're like, well, why are you doing that? I can, I know what you're capable of. I've seen what you can do, but he still doesn't have that all the time. It's just a lack of consistency at this point. And being injured and missing a little time certainly doesn't help. But, you know, you get a full bye week. He was running through all the drills here. We're recording on a Monday night, so he's running through all the, the drills regularly here this morning as they get back to their regular game game week prep. And if he's going to ever have that big breakout game, I mean, there is a defense across from him on Sunday that does not appear capable of stopping very much of anything and has made some quarterbacks look like absolute Hall of Famers in their early part of the season. So I think that this is a big chance for him to get back to full game speed, back with maybe a couple other weapons on the offense coming back healthy, and just go out there and showcase his skills. I'm not worried about him. I don't think that this is an indication of what like what his ceiling is. I do think he's always going to have some accuracy issues. I do think he's always going to try to make some hero ball plays. But hopefully, over time, he learns when he can and can't do those kind of things. And you you see him a couple of years down the road limiting those interceptions, throwing the ball out of bounds, taking a sack instead of trying to force a play, and then making better reads. I think we've seen more of that this year than we did when he started last year. And it's just hoping that he continues on that path. He's still such a young quarterback, and I think we forget about that sometimes. That he's, he's only played 16 games in the NFL. He's made it through one season. He's basically now, just now, starting his second year as a professional quarterback. And there was a lot of room still for him to continue to develop moving forward. When you have, when you're in broadcasting, I don't care whether it's a TV show or a radio show or even a podcast like mine or the one that you do with the guys at 716 Sports Podcast, does it bother you? When you hear a lot of Josh Allen to Baker Mayfield or to Sam Darnold or to Josh Rosen comparisons this early in their career, like it changes every week. Like Sam Darnold was trash seven days ago. Now he's the best quarterback in the class. Baker Mayfield couldn't do no wrong a couple weeks ago. Now he's the worst. Josh Allen, he's the best. He's the worst. It's like, relax, man. It's early. It's very early. Fans have a hard time being patient with young quarterbacks, and that includes Josh Allen. I feel like in Buffalo, and I'm including myself, by the way. I'm not throwing shade at Buffalo Bills fans right now and excluding myself because I'm the same way. I kind of have a knee, I'm a knee jerk reactor, but does it kind of bother you a little bit the knee jerk reactions of Josh Allen based on one game and not the big picture? I mean, it's just the reality. I think of the 24 seven kind of media and news cycle that exists these days, especially with the the internet and social media. Everyone's got an opinion, and everyone wants their opinion out first. And it, I think these players are always going to be tied to each other for the rest of their careers. It's just the reality of it. We still talk about Eli Rivers and Roethlisberger as a draft class, or you talk about Tom Brady compared to the other people who are drafted ahead of him. These players will always be compared to each other, especially at the top level, because you know that whoever, at number one, Cleveland chose Baker Mayfield. Well, they could have had any of these guys. What if Baker turns out to be the fourth best guy? That means that they made a mistake in quarterbacks, especially under such a microscope. Yeah. Every little decision thing they can do. I mean, you're right. Sam Darnold went from a guy who was like, oh, I can't believe he's not going to go on the field and risk his life because he's got a spleen that hasn't fully healed <laughs> to, man, this guy beat the Cowboys and looked absolutely incredible. But the turnaround and the hot peakiness of the, of sports journalism these days, it, it wears a little bit. And I'm, I spend a lot of my time when I'm not recording podcasts in, in a broadcast booth doing doing hockey play-by-play is what, a, what I do in some of my free time. And it's just everyone's going to – Break down every little bit. There was so much time and so many people dedicating so much time to sports and breaking down every little thing about it. That I mean, for better or worse, Josh Allen is always going to be compared to, and probably especially Sam Darnold because they're in the same division, or Josh Rosen, or even Lamar Jackson. 
And when, when a guy goes undrafted and turns out to be a superstar, you're like, man, there was 15 running backs drafted ahead of Chris Carson. How did Chris Carson go undrafted and so on and so forth? Players are always tied to you know, their whole draft year. And I think that narrative will never leave. If it ever leaves the six of them, it'll if only three of them are started in five years, they'll compare those three until the end of time. Yeah, that's a good point. What about the rookie contributions on his team right now? That's another five-week storyline that I got in my notes. Now, there hasn't been anyone who's, like, emerged as a star, so to speak, right away, but Ed Oliver and Dawson Knox have been pretty solid. And I'll tell you, the tight end position could have been a disaster because it hasn't been good in years. And, of course, Tyler Croft got injured. So I was very concerned about the tight end position, but I think Dawson Knox, for the most part, and don't get me wrong, he's made some mistakes. He's had a case of the drops. He's, he's done a couple of boneheaded things out there, but he's also made some really good catches, very big catches, too. In fact, that catch probably won that Cincinnati Bengals game that he made the catch and run, I should say. Ed Oliver's been very solid again. That could have been a problem with Kyle Williams retiring. Who knows how a rookie, I don't care how heralded he is coming into the NFL, you never know what the rookie, especially somebody on the defensive line, is going to be going against veteran centers and guards that have been doing it for years. I feel like these guys have been good. Singletary showed a lot of promise those first couple games. He looked like he looked like a star, to be frank with you, when he actually got touches. But, you know, he's missed the last three games with a hamstring. Hopefully, he'll be coming back this week. Cody Ford has struggled badly in the second round. He's a second-round pick. I still feel like he's playing out of position right now, but I don't know that the Bills agree with that. I think they're going to keep putting him back out there, right tackle, and see if he can get it right. Tooting him with a... Ty and Secchi. And then you got Daryl Johnson, a, you know, an afterthought, the late seventh rounder, and he's been he's been a pretty nice addition to this team. He had a sack against Tennessee, and he's part of that defensive end rotation. When you look at this class as a whole right now, going into this bye week, what's your assessment of it? I think Knox has come along really nicely so far. He was not really part of the game plan. I felt like the first couple of weeks, but every time he's back out there, they do seem to be realizing that he's capable of more and more. And for a guy who didn't even have a touchdown in college, he's already got a pro touchdown. He had that big play against Cincinnati. He had yep. a couple really nice catches. I think he's going to be the number one tight end on this team sooner than later. And Tyler Croft, by virtue of just not being able to get on the football field, might have just handed handed the keys right over to Knox maybe a few games sooner than it would have happened organically. But, I mean, yeah, Croft is a decent blocking tight end. Not a terrible thing to have both of them able to be out there in, in, some, in certain situations. I think Singletary looked very, very good in limited touches. I'll be curious to see if he does play on Sunday. I think early indications are he might be ready to go. I do not think there's necessarily a need to rush him. Um, but, I mean, how many more 20-plus carry Frank Gore games are there left in the tank? I think the sooner that you can get Singletary up to full speed, I mean, he's a different kind of running back, but he has shown very good explosiveness, decent pass-catching ability, he's a decent blocker. I think there's a lot there, and I think he's the future of the Bills running back position here, at least for the next couple of years. Ford, I, I agree with you on Ford. Ford's had some struggles. I think it's a little too early on him to really judge him one way or the other. I have a feeling that it will not be his permanent position over there at right tackle, but I guess we will we will see what they decide to do if he keeps getting blown up. It might be necessary for them to make a change. And then I talked a little bit about Oliver already. I think he's doing a great job eating up double teams on the inside. You see him throwing off players with, with both hands and making things really easy for the defensive ends. And his stats are not wonderful, but I think that's just an indication of they don't, they don't give you a – Statistical bonus for creating a positive matchup for a teammate. Right. And I think he does a lot on the defensive line. Yeah, for sure. Last thing I got here, do we know if this team is for real? I got that written in my notes as a question mark, okay? Because, look, they've beaten the Jets, they've beaten the Giants, the Bengals, and the Titans. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer here 
or below that off is nothing, but those teams are a combined 5-18 and 18 on the year. And then conversely, though, on the other side, if you want to write that off, they did play the New England Patriots. They came to that game 3-0, and and that typically is the kind of game where the Bills come crashing on the earth where all the hope is in the air, and then they come out and they get blown away. And that did not happen against the Patriots. They played them within a score, and they could have won that game. So is asking if this team for real right now, do you think that's still a little premature? And if, it, if you do think it is premature, when do you think we're going to know? I think it depends on what, what, what your definition of real is. I think there's two different versions of that. If, you, if you're asking, is this team a playoff team, I think at this point we can say yes. I think this team is a playoff team. I think that the schedule ahead of them is incredibly favorable. Anything less than a playoff berth at this point would be an incredible disappointment because this team is fully capable of making the playoffs. They are the second-best team in their division. They're like a, maybe a 1B to the Patriots, 1A at this point, only because the Patriots' offense is still light years ahead of what we're doing in Buffalo, at least through five games. If you're asking, is this team real in a can-they-hang-with- the New Englands and Kansas Cities of the world, I don't think we know that yet. They hung with New England because their defense had an incredible game. I don't know if you can necessarily count on your defense doing that to Tom Brady again, at least not to that level. I think the defense can contain the Patriots, but I don't think you're going to expect Tom Brady-led offenses to be held at 16 points a game very consistently, right. no matter how good your defense is. I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take something from the offense. I think the offense needs to have a breakout 35- to 40-point game before I can even consider that this team can hang with the passing offenses. It's, it's still a passing league first. It's great to have a good defense. It's great to have a good running game. But ultimately, if you cannot throw the ball, you will not win a Super Bowl. And I still don't have that confidence in our passing game to go have a game. Like you think about the, the most exciting NFL game last year, which is the Chiefs and the Rams game where they were just chucking the ball down the field and mm-hmm. just defense be basically just going wire to wire. That's what this league is slowly moving to. Now, that was an incredible display of it, more than average. But the Bills still seem like they're trying to do the old ground and pound, win the battle of the trenches. There, There is importance to that. There is importance to being a good defensive team and having a running game. But you have to be good in all facets. And until the Bills passing offense proves that they are able to put up a bunch of points, whenever that may be, maybe Miami game's not included because I think everyone should be putting up 300-plus yards and a few touchdowns and the Dolphins in the air at this point. But that, that's what it would take for me to consider them to be a serious contender for anything more than just, you know, getting a wild card berth and then trying to go beat Houston or whoever ends up being the four seed in the AFC. Well, I'll tell you, even without them playing on Sunday, I feel more comfortable now saying that I think the Bills could be a playoff team than I did before Sunday. And, again, that's without them even playing. It's not like they went out and got a W. They didn't even play. But there were like at least three games on Sunday that kind of changed my mind where I look at the remainder of their schedule, and I'm like, you know what, this isn't as daunting as I thought it might have been. I mean, you got Miami. They're on five. What really needs to be said about Miami? This is one of the teams I'm talking about, Philly. No, they are a good team. Don't get me wrong. They come in Buffalo and win very easily. But, Dude, they got slammed by Minnesota, and Philly's only 3-3, three and three, and their secondary is a mess. So not quite as scared as Philly now as I was before this last weekend. Then you got Washington. And by the way, that Philly game's in Buffalo, which is big. Washington at home, they got one win. What else needs to be said? They almost lost in Miami. And here's the second game, Cleveland. All right, they're on the road to, to play Cleveland, but you know what? That team's 2-4. and four. They just lost to Seattle. They got New England this week. They very well could be 2-5. and five. The wheels are coming off. I think they're overrated very much so. they got no offensive line. I think it's a terrible matchup. The Bills do have a good defense, and and it travels well. So having no offensive line doesn't make for a good matchup against Buffalo. So that And their season might be over. Again, by the time they play Buffalo, 
their season might already be over. So I'm not scared of Cleveland anymore. Then they're at Miami again. Again, no explanation needed. Denver at home. I won't write this off as a cakewalk, but Denver's 2-4. and four. They're going nowhere, and they got a killer stretch of schedule starting. So I'm not worried about them. And then you got the Dallas game. This is the third team I'm talking about. Still a very daunting game, of course, on the road Thanksgiving Day. But Dallas just proved they're far from unbeatable. They've lost three straight, including a loss to the Jets. So I'm not scared of them. Baltimore, they didn't move the needle for me on Sunday. I don't feel any better or worse about playing them than I did a few weeks ago. At Pittsburgh, a good seat. Not very good team, I should say. But they are dangerous. They got a good defensive players. They got playmakers. Then at New England. And then the Jets. So basically what I'm telling you is this. If the Bills could go 4-2 and two against Miami, Philly, Washington, at Cleveland, at Miami, and Denver. If they win four of those games, and I think they'll be significantly favored both times they play Miami, Washington, and Denver at home for sure. And then even if they just win one of those four games that are, we're supposed to be scared of, at Dallas, Baltimore, at Pittsburgh, at New England, and then they beat the Jets in their home finale, dude, that gets you to 10 wins. That's 10-6, and six, man. It's becoming more and more feasible to me as I think about it that the Bills could be a 10-win team this year. Does that sound logical to you? I mean, there's no one on the schedule who scares you, maybe, except for the Patriots. I mean, every team that you mentioned there, Baltimore gets a win, but they didn't really run away from Cleveland. Cleveland gave them the game. Cleveland's falling apart. Philly can't defend the pass. Dallas got beat by the Jets uh, in the Meadowlands, and they look terrible. They've looked terrible for the last three weeks. There's no one on that schedule that is untouchable. I think it is about as favorable of a schedule as you could possibly hope for in the modern day of the NFL. It is just the stars have aligned for Buffalo in terms of who they have ahead of them. They have some of the worst teams I've ever seen all on the schedule in the same year, which is just incredible. You got Miami twice still, the Jets, I'm not scared of the Jets, I'm not scared. The Redskins are terrible. The Steelers are down to their third quarterback. I mean, maybe they'll have Mason Rudolph back by then. Maybe that doesn't even matter. The only team on there that even, like, you're like, I don't know, still just the Patriots. And, Honestly, this is, I think 10 wins is easily achievable. I would be disappointed in anything less than 10 wins. That's crazy honestly, to say that. Isn't that crazy to say that now? We, we would have said that a month ago. Anything less than 10 wins would be a disappointment. With the Bills, we would not have said that a month ago. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you, and then New England's going to get to the second half of their schedule, and there's going to be some difficult games in there when they're going to start playing a lot more playoff teams and you know, the Kansas Cities and Houston of the world. I mean, it is not unreasonable that New England goes 12-4 and four and, not unreasonable that maybe Buffalo goes 12-4 and four, and that Week 16 game against the Patriots becomes not just for a playoff spot. That that could shape up to be a game for the AFC East, which is crazy to think about. I'm putting myself I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Yeah. But you look at between now and then, it's not unreasonable to think that that may be where the season is going. Yeah, and I'll tell you, man, I want to temper my expectations, and I see people on Twitter, including radio people. I'm not just talking fans. I'm talking media, too, talking 10-11 wins, and if you want to – I want to say, yo, pump the brakes, but when you lay that schedule on in the scenario like you just said, man, it, it is. It's incredibly feasible. Before we get out of here, speaking of, like, things we didn't think we would be talking about a month ago or so, what about the Sabres, dude? 5-0-1 right now to start the season? They destroyed Dallas on Monday afternoon. Impressive record. Even more so impressive that I feel like they're, like, thoroughly outplaying teams right now. I mean... They didn't play well against Columbus when they stole that point. But aside from that, they've kind of like sort of dominated most of these games. You got Are you stunned right now at what you're seeing with the Sabres? I know I am. Well, I think the reason that it's so surprising is because there wasn't a whole lot that was done to change this team in the offseason. They don't trade Ristolainen. 
They re-signed Skinner. They got Eichel locked in for a long contract. The goaltending stays the same. The only the changes are, you know, Marcus Johansson, Jimmy VC, Henry Yogiharu, and Colin Miller on defense. And then you, you have a couple defensive injuries. You look at the roster, like, this is literally the same team. And they play Sabatka on, you see Sabatka on the second line, and Opozo, Gergensen, and Larson is a line. You're like, what is this? What are they yeah. doing? And to their credit, and I will, I will fully admit to being wrong about what they what they built line wise. This team has been absolutely just dominating teams. I got to go to the game on on Friday night against Florida, the only game I've been able to to be at so far this season. They've been so good at home, and for the first time, and I can't even tell you, I, I go to probably four or five games a year, and it's been a long time since that was a building that was really it really felt like the old hockey happened days. So you think about all the loud games and the playoff teams and the the Drury Briere led Sabres teams, that those memories are slowly fading away because that's been God, 10 years now. It's crazy to think about since that really dominant era of Sabres hockey really passed us by. But that game went to overtime and everyone's standing. No, no one's in their seats. Everyone's standing, living on every second. Game goes to shoot. That's the loudest I've heard that building, the most active I've heard that building in, in years and years. And I think you're, you you hit, hit the nail on the head with that, too. It's not just that they're winning games. They had a 10-game winning streak last year, and it felt like, man, if one puck bounced differently in about every single one of those games, they could have lost every single one of those games by two or three goals. Yeah. These games that they're winning here to start the season, going 5-0 and won 11 points out of 12 to start the year, they are just straight, just pushing teams around. They pushed Pittsburgh around to start the season. They pushed Dallas around big time today. They are putting themselves in positions where if they make a big mistake, it doesn't matter. And even in the game where they did make some mistakes and ultimately lost because of a turnover, they still came back from down 2 nothing to tie Columbus. They came back from down 3-2 to two to force overtime. That was the worst game they played by a large margin, and they still went on the road to a team that I think a lot of people would consider to be a possible wildcard team in Columbus, and they still took a point away from that game. And I think the credit really goes, Ralph Kruger, whatever he has done in that room to get these players playing this well, whether it's just changing the system, making it easier defensively. I mean, Sabaka hasn't been great, but he's been fine. Marco Scandella, who was basically wor- worthless last year, is one of the best defenders in like advanced statistics in the entire NHL. He's doing this without Brandon Montour and Lawrence Pilot. He's doing this without Tage Thompson. He's made a line of Opozo, Larson, and Gergensen's just basically bully teams and push teams around the will and energy of this team. It is incredible that this is still by and large the same group of players that went out there last year and had one of the worst collapses I've ever seen by a professional sports team to miss the playoffs. It has been a revolution what they have done so far in these first six games. And I know it's so early in the season. There's still 76 more games left. But a team that plays with that kind of spirit, I I think they're going to find themselves winning games like this more often than not. Well, I'll tell you what, the biggest thing for me is that it's fun to watch the games right now. Now, we're both Sabres fans, but we're on a different level. I feel like you're a diehard Sabres fan. You're going to watch this team play, whether they're good or not. Whereas I am, uh, I'm just going to say, and I'm kind of a fair weather fan. I'm a bandwagon hopper. I'll watch the games, and when they're not playing well or when they're boring, even if they are playing well, like last year, even during that winning streak, I wasn't. those weren't exciting games to me. But anyway, my point is, I'll watch enough of it so that I could talk about it and not be a complete buffoon when I'm on the air, okay? I don't sit there and watch every Sabres game. There's been over special the last couple seasons. By January, February, I'm mostly tuned out from this team. And I'm not going to say that's not going to happen again right now. But what I know, watching these games right now is just a different feeling for me. 
They're flying around, and they're a lot of fun to watch. And by the way, what about that power play, man? They're 9 for 21 on the season. Olsen's got five goals. They're all on the power play right now. Darlene's got six assists on the power play. Eichel's got six points. I mean, dude, this unit is deadly. And it's not like they're getting lucky breaks and the plus are finding the way in the net. They're scoring highlight goals. I mean, this is like must-see TV right now, a Buffalo Sabres power play, which even going back as recently as last year, you used to cringe when the Sabres would go on the power play. Not the case anymore. The goal that Olison scored in the, the Dallas game today was just so so well constructed by Dalene and Eichel and then him ultimately. It's done wonders to have a guy who's got that kind of shot across from Jack because obviously you can't just start trying to focus yourself on Olison because help you if you try to give Jack Eichel that much time and that much space. And the fact that you have a guy in Rasmus Dalene who is capable of being the lone defenseman out there gives you so many more options for forwards and having Reinhardt Skinner, whoever you want down low as well. Power play is fantastic. And as long as Olsen keeps shooting that well, it is going to be very difficult to defend. I think his maybe his, his shooting percentage is a little bit unsustainable, but he just looks fantastic out there on the power play. I'm waiting to maybe see a five-on-five goal, although he did have a very, very good five-on-five assist today to Reinhardt. Yeah. I mean, that top line, I, I was a little worried when I saw Skinner and Eichel not on the same line to start the season, but I think it's worked great because Skinner and Johansson have been great together. Olsen and Reinhardt and I could live in great together, and it has allowed, I think, something we talked about in the offseason. You wondered what they were going to be able to do to split up the scoring so that teams couldn't just focus only on Jack Eichel, and I think they've done it. I think at this point, if you try to shut down the Eichel line, the Eichel line didn't have any goals on the game on Friday against Florida. Eckblad did a pretty good job taking Eichel and his line out of the game. But it didn't matter because there was great scoring. Scandella gets a goal. The Larson opposo Gergensen's line goes to work. Skinner had some chances. Middlestat had a great shootout goal. It's just there's enough depth right now that if these players, these second and third line players, keep playing this well, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how far they can push this because you know you got a power play clicking at forty something percent. You're putting up goals left and right from all your lines. There's a lot going on here, and it's fascinating to see. Like we we wondered when someone was going to break out for like the last five years, and no one's broken out, and all of a sudden you got. Seven or eight players like, wow, that's the best I've ever seen them play in a Sabres jersey, all in the same five-game span. Yeah, it feels like the guys that are supposed to be scoring the goals, the guys that we've been waiting for to start exploding, all seem to be doing it at once. You used the word worried when it came to Skinner not playing with Jack Eichel. I was flat-out terrified. I thought moving him away from Jack was going to hurt his offense, get the critics chirping at him because he scored 40 goals last year and he would struggle to find the net right now. But And again, this is a small sample size, six games admittedly, but Dude's got four goals already in six games, and he looks great playing with Marcus Johansson, who, by the way, looks really good at center. That was supposed to be another big worry coming into the season. He's already got three goals and five points himself. And Sabaka played with him. Sabaka, he looked, he did look like crap for, for the most part early in the season, but even today against Dallas, man, he had two really good assists. He won a key draw. He had a beautiful pass for that goal that's going Everything seems to be clicking right now. Do you think it's sustainable, though? I guess that's the question, and it's kind of like the same thing with the Bills. Do you believe this team... Being good is sustainable. And by the way, one last thing, too. It's not like they're beating up on a bunch of chumps. Some of these teams are pretty good that they're playing. You know what I mean? I'm I'm just kind of I'm just blown away right now. I'm almost having a hard time describing it. I mean, is it, is it sustainable for them to be as good as they are right now? I don't think so. I mean, right. no not one's going to get on the power play this long into a season. They're not going to be able to just go and beat every team for nothing. Do I think it is reasonable that this is actually a much better hockey team than we thought it is? I think that's reasonable to start thinking that here six games into the season. 
I think that everyone would have buried this team down below Montreal and Florida in the preseason. They just crushed both those teams last week in good, close, tough hockey games. I think this is a team that is right on the cusp of one of those playoff spots. It's a tough division. It's tough to compete. The season is long. Got teams in Boston, Toronto, and Tampa that have a lot of experience, are very deep. They've struggled out of the gate in some cases, but these are teams that have expectations and they've met them, at least met getting to the playoffs the last few years. So the road is not easy. It's going to be a lot that's going to test this team, and we're going to have to see what they do when they finally face some adversity because they really have not faced any adversity so far this season. But I think that it is reasonable to start to start thinking is, man, is the Sabres team maybe the third or fourth or fifth best team in this division? And if you think that, then maybe this is the team that can finally get them off the playoffs tonight. Last thing here, you know, it's a really good time to be a Buffalo sports fan right now. I mean, let's face it. And the last time both teams were really good, the Bills and the Sabres, at the same time, you have to go all the way back to 1998-99, which is kind of sad. Considering we're not talking four sports teams, you know, that have four major sports teams. We're talking just two, and it's been that long. But in 98, the Bills went 10-6, and six, and then they lost to Miami in the wild card. And the Sabres, they were nothing too special during the regular season, 91 points. But they did get in the playoffs, and they eventually went on a run all the way to the Stanley Cup final. Then the next year, both teams both made the playoffs and both lost in the first round. Bills to Tennessee, of course, in the Music City Miracle. And then the Sabres lost in five to Philly. That was a wrap for both teams being good at the same time. Not since, like, the turn of the century, literally. Which one would you bet on right now? Actually, you know what? Let me take that question back. The Bills, I'm sure, are the safer bet because we've talked about their schedule. Everything's just set up completely perfect for them. Whereas the Sabres, not so much so. But is it a little bit closer right now, the gap between the Bills and the Sabres, than you thought it might have been? You know what I'm saying? Like, the Sabres, are, maybe they're not right up there with the Bills right now, but... The gap's a little bit closer than we thought it might have been. I agree, and I'm to, to take that even a little bit further here, and maybe this is just how, how highly I'm thinking of what they played for six hockey games. I think the Sabres are playing better hockey right now than the Bills are playing football right now. Yeah. I do think that the Bills are a more likely playoff team at this point because of the schedule and other factors. I think that their defense is a more sustainable thing than the Sabres' special teams and offense has been. But, I mean, the Sabres have been just flat-out impressive. There are maybe one or two other teams in the NHL who are playing as good of hockey right now as the Buffalo Sabres. And I would say that they are on a track. If they could somehow keep this pace up, or even 80% of the pace up, they would be a playoff team, no doubt about it, no matter who's in front of them. I think that it is reasonable to start at this point, Sabres have much less of their season gone percentage-wise, that these teams are maybe closer than we thought they were going to be. I think everyone thought the Bills were farther ahead in their rebuild but the Sabres have turned that clock way ahead here this year. I feel like it's amazing what one coach could do. I think Kruger has made a big, big difference, and I'll tell you, it doesn't do Phil Housley any favors at all when you think about it in that regards. But we'll, we'll... No, it does not. Honestly, if, if, if the only difference in this team is Ralph Kruger, Phil Housley should never get a head coaching job again. If this is the team that he had last year and he couldn't get anything out of them, he should never, ever be behind a bench in the NHL again for what he did to this hockey team last, last couple of years. Unbelievable. All right, man, I'm going to let you go. I imagine the vibe's going to be pretty good when you do the next 716 Sports Podcast with the guys. It's a lot more fun to tape shows when the teams are good. Hell, you know what? Even when one of the teams are good, it's a lot more fun to get together with the guys, have a couple drinks, grab the mic, and uh, just start shooting the shit. A lot more fun that way, ain't it? It definitely is, and it's really in the whole history of our show, which is only going back a few years now. This is the 
by far best that both the teams have been since we ever started recording an episode. So this is kind of uncharted territory for us here. It's going to be a much heavier Sabre show that we're going to record here this week focusing on hockey, but it'll be good to finally break down some of the some of the games that have happened here the last week and just kind of sit back and, and bask and finally having some good teams to, to watch up here in Buffalo. Yeah, this is uncharted territory just for this segment having two good teams to talk about. Anyway, everyone, give Jeff a follow on Twitter at JeffBoyd716. Make sure you check out the 716 Sports Podcast. Drops on Tuesdays. Available everywhere at Blaze Podcasts. Thanks, my man. Good job, as always. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pat. Hi, I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the podcast about broadcast. Every week since 2016, we've been bringing on broadcast leaders to talk about their experiences in radio, what they've seen, and where they believe it is all going. If you live and love radio, subscribe to the Sound Off Podcast with Matt Kundle wherever you get your podcasts. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for this episode. Big, very big thank you again, Kristen Ledlow. My God, what an awesome, awesome guest she was for this podcast one of my favorite guests to date very busy but to take time out do this show today with me means an awful lot so thank you very much Kristen also thanks to my guy Jeff Boyd the big Boyd theory always love having Jeff on talking some bills savers whatever else comes up always a good time with Jeff guys if you have not done so already please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast when you subscribe You're going to get new episodes before anyone else does. They automatically get sent to your phone or your computer, whatever device it is that you use to listen. You can find us on Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Also, don't forget, rate and review the podcast. It continuously helps us grow this show. Also, make sure you check out the Moran Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. Besides just highlight clips from current and past episodes of this pod, we also now have plenty of original audio content, calling that Moranalytics Podcast Extra. That's content exclusive to the YouTube channel. You won't hear it anywhere else, including this podcast. So go on YouTube, find Moranalytics Podcast, hit that little red subscribe button down that's just underneath the videos and that little bell right next to it so you can get notifications when new content is released. And then last... Certainly not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamaran Tweets. Constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guests, polls, all kinds of other stuff on there. And thanks again for listening. I say it all the time. I really, truly mean it. I appreciate each and every single one of you that take time from your day to give this podcast a listen, whether it's twice a week, whether it's once a week, in the gym, in the car, wherever it may be. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. Have a good week. Talk to you again on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.